You're listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana, and I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and to help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and you enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, I'd really appreciate it. Go ahead and check out patreon.com slash justincana. Thanks in advance if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this video, filling up all five stars on iTunes, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is a solo episode. Yep, it's just you and me. I'll be dishing up a curated list of articles, happenings, and headlines that I've been paying attention to over the past few days, and then season them with my perspective and opinions on the latest industry stories. If you want to dive deeper into any of the stories I cover today, full show notes are available on justincona.com slash podcast. And if you come across a story you'd like me to feature in a future episode, shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Let's get ready to welcome your host for this episode, Justin Kana. What is up, folks? Special what's up to everyone supporting on Patreon, supporting this show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you want a shout out on the show, once you become a patron, I'd like to give a little public display of appreciation on the next Solo Emulsion podcast. Uh, I think I've done it once or twice in a interview intro, but I like to keep it to these because then maybe you might be hanging out on Twitch and you might be able to see your see and hear your name uh, called out because I really do appreciate every single one of you. Uh, and I have something kind of semi-special in the works for the Patreon fam. Um, that's going to be coming out this week. So if you are a supporter on Patreon, stay tuned for that. I'm going to be sending you an email. Uh, we are also on our way to a thousand patrons, folks. So every single one of you helps. I remember way back in the day when I was like praying for a hundred YouTube subscribers uh, and then it very quickly became a thousand. So every single buddy, every single person helps. And I really appreciate everybody that helps support this show. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a restaurant labor crisis, or I guess the current restaurant labor crisis, a new Thomas Keller restaurant design in restaurants, sommelier anonymity, it's a hard word to say, the flow of a restaurant service, and more coming right up. Today's beverage, which I gave a couple of Twitch people a little preview of, is uh, this apricot LaCroix, which uh, I just picked up. I haven't had their apricot flavor before. I'm a big fan of LaCroix. I'm like addicted to it. Someone posted a tweet the other day that said, LaCroix tastes like my foot fell asleep. And I could so relate to that. I just thought it was hilarious. Apricot's okay. It's not very, very strong. I mean, none of them are very strong, but we also have mango in the fridge, which I'm a much bigger fan of. Uh, but before we get into it, I want to acknowledge and apologize, actually, that I didn't cover the James Beard Awards this year on the Emulsion Podcast. Of course, most of you know the results already. I felt even worse that uh, Eduardo Jordan, a Seattle chef, got two awards and one of them being the best new restaurant for his restaurant, June Baby, and I didn't even cover it. So I apologize in advance for that. Maybe it's because I didn't have much to say opinion-wise about it, but I did want to clear that up. So it is a story that I've been covering the past few years. I didn't want anyone to think that there was some underlying reason why I didn't cover it. Um, it is tricky with these new shows being every other week because at max I'm covering stuff that's like 14 days old. So I'm kind of trying to keep it current, but also making sure that I don't gloss over anything that would bring value to you folks. Um, I just felt, I guess, that 
everybody that published something on it would have said everything that I would have said anyways. So that was also not a huge reason for me to cover it. But that's just a little quickie update on the James Beard Awards. So first up, and we're going to switch views here, a really interesting headline to read. It's from Eater, and it goes, are there too many restaurants? Question mark. Now, for those of you that have been following along for the show for, with, for a while, know that I covered a story a few months back talking about the restaurant bubble, quote-unquote, popping. And what this little blurb talks about is 100% a contributing factor to that. But this focuses much more on the fast food side of things, the more casual uh, chain restaurant side of things. The data, it says, isn't all that positive. There's two problems at work here. One is that the number of restaurants is rising and the increased demand for jobs is there, but the article in particular uses Subway as an example, Subway restaurants, and the number of teenagers that is working is down 15%. So 45% of teenagers were working in 2000, but only 30% are now. And psychology has a lot to blame for that. So the mindset the mindset of these younger people has changed. These studies shows that a lot of those teenagers want to work for themselves and or focus on education or scholarships, which to me is fascinating, right? Like that's a really interesting time to be alive in. But what's a good solution to this problem? The article doesn't exactly suggest one. We've covered, we've talked so many times on this show about restaurants and how the margins are so thin. And um, with businesses, the two options that a business has seems pretty obvious, right? Either make more money or cut down your costs. But with the minimum wage going up, and the average consumer asking for higher quality ingredients and convenient locations, it's increasingly more difficult to cut costs if those are the only two options you have as a business owner to make more money or, or, or make more of a profit, I guess. Plus, with people without people to help scale those businesses, without the manpower to help the extra hands, how can you technically justify opening more locations? Right, it's a it's it's a pickle for sure, and I'm really really watching closely to see what's going to happen as these behaviors are are shifting. Re- Semi related to the story, and kind of like a little selfish plug here. I'm only saying this because of this line in the article, and it particularly kind of struck a chord for me. Uh, Amanda Clut from Eater, the author of this article, saying, or I guess a little blurb says, "Quote: Chefs have been complaining to me about how hard it is to find, maintain, and elevate talent for years." End quote. And I'm not sure how many of you have been listening for a while, how many of you are new, but my personal opinion is those same chefs that are complaining are typically doing zero to help the next generation, right? Like, where do you think these good cooks are going to come from, right? Like, the culinary schools that you disrespect and and just talk shit about, or, like, the stages that you won't take because your business doesn't accept free work, quote-unquote, right? Like, I don't think that it should be the chef's job 100% to, like, f- make the next generation of cooks better, But it's a huge reason why I host this show, why I put out the content that I put out. Because if I do it right, it helps everyone, right? It helps the chef by watching my content. You are hopefully becoming a better chef. And it helps you maybe as a little supplement to your culinary education if you're working somewhere. But that's my tiny little rant. I hate complaining without action. It's just wasted air to me. But that's my opinion. Question of the day for you. What would you like to see chefs doing better to help this next generation? Let me know in the comments. Or if you're listening as a podcast, I encourage you to tweet at me. That's Justin underscore Kana. I would love, love, love to continue this conversation because of course it sucks to hear about all these problems and it's going to like 
cause all the stuff to settle and the cream to rise and, and, and everything is going to hash itself out. But if there are solutions that we can do now to set ourselves up better for later success, I would love to know what your thoughts are on the kind of state of, of, of these issues. Next up in news that I've been wanting to cover forever, a semi and maybe I semi-covered it months ago, Thomas Keller's Miami restaurant is finally public. We have info, we have a name, we have a location. So it's called the Surf Club Restaurant. It's going to pay tribute to the gorgeous building that it's housed in with Art Deco-inspired chandeliers, beaded ceiling, terrazzo floors, the whole nine. The, in t- the original building opened on New Year's Eve in 1930, and it was actually called the Surf Club, but t- Chef Keller wants to breathe new life into it and really take advantage of the current lifestyle in Miami. Uh, saying, quote, we're hoping to bring Miami, what we're hoping to bring to Miami is the kind of restaurant where people can go out and celebrate. It's going to be a tip of the hat to a time when America was the most optimistic, when the appeal in America, the pride in America was at its peak. The glamour, the celebration, that's the kind of restaurant this will be, end quote. So overall, this is kind of like a really light press release for info on the space. It's scheduled to open this summer. Funny enough, a friend of mine is actually helping to open it. He was on the Ask Gary V show this past week, and him and I were messaging a little bit because I said congratulations for getting on the show. Uh, he's big into wine. He was a sommelier at the French Laundry when I was there. But I'm really trying to get him on the show if I can get Oscar's schedule dialed in. But they don't talk about, uh, that's why I say it's a light press release. They don't talk about the number of seats. Uh, They do talk about doing dinner every night and brunch on the weekends, as well as what the menu is going to entail. He says, quote, the classics, beef wellington, herb roasted chicken, lobster thermidor, vegetable louis, true ribeye, desserts will include lemon meringue, tart, and coconut cake, end quote. Which, if they're taking any inspiration from, like, some of the restaurants that are opening in New York that are kind of giving this tip of the hat back to, you know, like, the the, the 90s-style luxury restaurants, it's going to do well. And especially with the scene in Miami, at least from what I, my limited knowledge of what I know about Miami, I haven't been there for a few years, but from what I know... It's smart, and after being at the French Laundry when this was in talks, this was like way back in the day, this was almost five years ago, this was in talks, and it was going to be called the Tack Room. I remember doing recipe testing for the Caesar salad dressing. Uh, They like gave me a recipe to test on my station and make it for staff meal, but that was going to be on the menu at this restaurant in Miami, which they were going to call the Tack Room. Now it's obviously called the the Surf Club Restaurant. But it's crazy to see how slow things like this happen. Uh, I talk about you know, this this idea being a concept five years ago. Maybe it did move fast once they were able to find a location and get the concept nar- like nailed down, but um, they were super patient in working on a space. And when you're someone with a reputation like Chef Keller, you can't be scrappy and do pop-ups and open places that aren't polished and perfect, right? Like it has to be a fully articulated vision. And of course, everyone is asking if this is going to be a per se or a trench laundry in Miami. No, Chef Keller said that himself, but... I see it, at least from my kind of outsider's uh, vision, I see it more like a Bouchon in Vegas that came to Miami, right? Like, that's more the direction that it's heading. Uh, It is. It's super smart, right? You you don't want to have a nine-course farm-focused tasting menu in Miami. You want a really opulent dining room, some great wine, some great cocktails, a big main course, and a fancy dessert, and then you have to get back to the party. You know what I mean? Like, that's why you're there in Miami. So it's obviously a very thought-through concept, but if you have any takeaways from this story, it should be that as much as I preach just going for it and making sure you're sharing your ideas, also make sure you're being thoughtful to your audience and what works best in that space and in that time, and not just what you're selfishly excited about executing. 
So next up, and a story I'm not really going to dive deep into because it's better that you, uh, you kind of read it yourself, especially if you are into restaurant design. So this is all about, um, this is from Artful Living. They did a piece uh, called Top Restaurants Serve Up Inspired Design, and the photos are gorgeous. It talks to, the article talks to Gavin Kaysen of Spoon and Stable in Minneapolis, as well as Dialogue from Dave Barron in LA, plus a couple of restaurants in New York City as well. Uh, if you're into restaurant design, I highly, highly recommend it. But a quickie takeaway for you is one design firm in New York wanted to do an experiment where they, quote, watched how diners reacted when neighboring tables were placed 9, 12, 15, and 24 inches apart. It turns out that the ideal table spacing is somewhere between 12 and 15 inches. So that's a little numbers takeaway for you if you're ever wanting to like figure out where how many tables can you fit in this dining room? 12 to 15 inches is that magic number. But there's really it, 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 there's there also is a really really funny theme throughout the entire article talking about how Gavin Kaysen steals spoons, which I may or may not be able to relate with. Next up, a piece called Sommeliers: Why the Anna Anonymity. I don't know why I can't say that word. It's by Nick Lander. It's talking about all it's it's talking all about why when you give someone a list of the best restaurants in the world, you can almost always name the chef behind them, but when asked who is leading you through the wine list, most people can't name that individual. And it's a paradox, right? Because yes, the chef does lead the cuisine, but oftentimes the psalm drives more revenue and it makes profitability possible in these higher-end restaurants and that person also makes the higher margins. So why do they have to take a back seat? Um, I lost my spacing. And this is all about, this is this is where the article falls flat for me, right? Like he, he presents this really cool study where he uh, talks all about how he presented these things to uh, to these this, these people at a conference. He said, uh, he gave a talk in Barcelona entitled Wine Experiences from the Greatest Menus in the World. And that's a great question to pose, but that's kind of where the story stops for me. And he goes into the history of where this might come from, traditionally how the menus were written and how the wine list was often secondary to the menu, which to all of us kind of makes sense. But he says, quote, there are the, so here are my two takeaways. The two simple changes that I believe will improve the wine experiences of customers and great restaurants. First of all, chefs ought to acknowledge more openly and explicitly the names of the people who write their wine lists. And the design of the menu and the wine list ought to be improved so that every customer can enjoy both of them simultaneously. End quote. Screw you, dude, Nick Lander, whatever your name is. These are both horrible solutions, right? Like one, the chef is not going to take a backseat to share the spotlight with the psalm, right? No one wants to hear that. Everybody, the consumer wants to see the chef first. It's too much of an ego game, right? And two, I don't think this guy has done any research on menu layout and consumer behavior, right? Like, has he not heard of the paradox of choice? You can't put wine and food on the same sheet of paper if they're long wineless and a long menu and be cognizant of the guest mindset, right? What about training psalms to be less encyclopedic and condescending and more personable with the goal of enhancing the restaurant experience. Why is that not a solution? And what about instead of acknowledging the names of the psalm, you show everyone why they're so valuable, right? Like no one cares if you say, hey guys, great news, we have a wine professional in our restaurant and their name is John Doe. 
Who cares, right? Like, tell me why they're special. Tell me why I should care as a guest. What about, like, doing Wine Wednesdays on your Instagram? What about sharing a day in the life of your psalm? What about doing, like, a Facebook live stream of that psalm and you as the chef tasting through the menu and figuring out all the pairings? These are all way better, more 2018 solutions to this problem, not just whatever he said. Like, giving their name and then giving the wine person a cat, like a, a spot on the first page of the menu. So silly. But seriously, his last line is, I sincerely believe the, in these points, and I hope one day to see them both enacted. That way, we can really begin to enjoy great wine in great restaurants. Horrible. Horrible. It's nothing to do with your headline, right? Like, it's nothing to do with how you started your article. But anyways, that's my sh quickie review on Nick Ladner's, Lander's writing, whatever his name is. It's not my circus, not my monkeys, as they say. So we're moving on. Fast Company did a piece. Uh, actually, we're going to go to this one first. Fast Company did a piece called, Hey, Restaurants, All That Food Porn Is Working. And like most of these non-food publication articles, I really, really try to pay attention to these because Fast Company normally talks about like entrepreneurship and business and tech startups. But us industry folks tend to put on a certain color lens of everything we do and see and read. But when the office worker that has a nine to five or the mom with three kids or the lawyer in that big firm downtown talks about food, I really try to dissect that because those are the insights that are really going to impact the masses. Right. So if what you're going for with your it's it's if that's what you're going for with your business, if, if you're trying to appease the world's 50 best crowd, maybe don't listen to these articles. But at the same time, so many of us, of course, we want the respect of these people. But at the same time, we also need to be cognizant of the fact that we do have the average Joe coming in to eat at a restaurant. And that is 80% of our customer base. So I'd really try to pay attention to these articles. So it, it, it's definitely not super in-depth. It is kind of like a classic uh, clickbaity style fast company article. But it does share some really cool insights. So Seven Rooms, which is a restaurant management platform, published a survey talking about reasons why a guest would come and remember, and return to your restaurant. So the results were kind of semi-surprising, and I'm going to share some of these stats with you for all you number folks like me. 22% of the survey's respondents said that they had gone to a restaurant based on what the food atmosphere looked like on social media, which is not a hugely surprising statistic. I would have expected it to be more. I would also be interested to see in what the numbers are for word of mouth for those um recommendations as well. <clears throat> it says over half, 51% of their respondents said that a waiter or waitress simply remembering them from a previous visit would make their dining experience more memorable. Again, if you're someone that is able to participate in the service, I was always taught growing up that the quote, quote unquote, welcome back line, if you see someone that has been in the restaurant before, does wonders for guests. So if you ever have the opportunity to interact with a guest and you've seen them in the restaurant before, just say, welcome back. Hey, welcome back. How's it going? Really, really, really impacts. And this study shows that. One in three, 35% of respondents said that a complimentary glass of wine with their meal would do the trick in getting them to come back, where 50% said a complimentary birthday dessert would make them come back. 83% of respondents said that they chose a place to go out to eat based on great food, 37% said they would choose one based on reputation, and 52% said location, location, location. And the reason why I started this whole number spiel 
by saying that I that it, all of these figures were semi-surprising is because you kind of get that biased response with some of these questions, right? We covered a story a few weeks ago sharing some shocking news that a huge percentage of people wanted minimum wage to go higher. Like, no shit, right? Like, do you like free stuff? If I gave you free stuff, would you come back? Of course, that's going to get some great survey responses. But it also sounds like a really way, great way to go broke as a restaurant, right? Like, yes, that slice of cake that you gave out for free only cost you $3.44 in food and labor cost. But how in the world do you justify having that couple sit there for another 25, 35, 45 minutes eating up space in your restaurant just because you wanted them to feel good? before leaving, right? Like the psychology is always perplexing to me and I'm, I'm all for building great relationships with your customers, but at a certain point, these surveys give a lot of data that I fear that chefs and restaurateurs will use as band-aids instead of going in there and doing surgery on their business. Does that make sense? Like I, I would hate to hear that someone has a really bad restaurant concept in a space that doesn't really make sense and then they read this article and they're like, oh, free wine and birthday desserts is what people want and then they see zero increase in business but a loss in profit because they didn't know how to interpret these findings and these statistics. So not here. I break it down for you with my non-existent restaurant, but I'm just telling you my thoughts. What do you think on this whole entire uh, statistics and and breakdown of, of consumer behavior? Next up in Let's Help Their SEO News, Restaurant Manifesto republished an article from 2016 that I don't actually ever think I ended up getting around to, and it was called "All of, It's All About the Flow, and it's more or less a PSA on why restaurants like getting your order all at the same time. Uh, and it might seem common obvious, most of you know this, I certainly know this, that it's a way, it's way easier to get a table's entire order of appetizer, first course, main course, rather than having them all come in a la carte. Um, but if you're just starting off, or if you want to understand why when you go out to eat at a restaurant, restaurants ask you to order all at the same time, it might be worth a read, and it might be something uh, worth looking into for you. They talk about the kitchen flow, expediting, station workload, all of it. Um, maybe even if you're at, like thinking about doing a different concept with your restaurant, it could be worth looking into. So I'm really trying to broaden the perspective of this show. I want to bring value not just to the people uh, wanting to start their own thing like me, but also if you're on day one in the industry, I want to make sure that I'm bringing value to you in this show. So these articles are great for that, and I highly, highly recommend this one. Next up, and I guess last up in this uh, in industry stories today, The Verge published a piece called The Line Between Food and Medicine is Blurrier Than Ever and the FDA Needs to Step Up Its Game. And this was particularly interesting to me because, one, I'm dating a pharmacist, and she tells me all the time about how she gets cases of people who were, like, they were told to drink turmeric or they were told to just start rubbing collagen cream on themselves and how angry she gets at all these claims and companies and people that make all this talk about the benefits to these foods and supplements but without any hard data to back it up. And this is particularly valuable to you as a food service professional or a hospitality provider, however you categorize yourself, because it might give you some insight on how to spot these new trends. People love the hot new thing that works, right? Or it might give you the ability to have an opinion and actually educate people. If you're serving chicken spiced with turmeric, some people might ask you what the health implications are of eating that, and you're going to be way better off having that knowledge rather than just kind of being like, I didn't know that turmeric does anything for you. 
So the article talks about that collagen cream that I mentioned uh, a couple seconds ago, saying, quote, though collagen is a protein found in bones, which it is most commonly known for as being an ingredient in skin cream, often to prevent wrinkles. But why stop at skin? Last year, 281 new food and supplement products featuring collagen were introduced in the U.S., and the Wall Street Journal reported, citing Innova Market Insights. While there's still little evidence that eating collagen will harm you, there is also no solid research suggesting that eating collagen will help you either, end quote. So you also might be asking, like, what's the big deal, right? Like, let people eat what they want to eat. And that's fine, but it's hard because where do you draw the line between a claim and a promise, right? Like, the article continues saying that these, that, quote, these collagen bars and teas are considered functional foods or foods that claim to be healthy beyond just basic nutrition. And the FDA does not, does regulate functional foods, but in practice, it doesn't. The FDA has no official definition for functional foods, and that makes regulation impossible, end quote. The solution the article suggests, quote, the FDA has long been criticized for not regulating supplements, which lead to supplements having illegal stimulants in them. In this era of wellness, the FDA needs to overhaul its policies. It needs to regulate supplements, to regulate what's in them, and be aggressive about monitoring functional foods and restricting the claims that people can make about what these foods will and won't do for your body. We want to be healthy, but the question is of what's healthy is a massive, complicated endeavor that most of us can't figure out. And it's easy to just buy the damn tea and the supplements your friend is suggesting. It's only human. And so the FDA needs to step in and protect our health before we harm ourselves in pursuit of it. End quote. And if you, you know, kind of caught that, that was definitely the last paragraph of the article as kind of tying a bow around all of it. And when it comes to my opinion on this, I'm all for regulation, honesty, and truth in your claims. But at a certain point, you also have to be aware of the fact that everybody's body is different. Everybody's opinion of healthy is also different. And everyone's willingness to do the work to achieve that level of health is also different, right? So it's not, it for me, it's not up to debate that eating a high, in a hypocaloric state, which means that you're burning more calories than you consume, and exercising a few times per week where you get your heart rate to a certain level and keep it there. And if you sleep seven to eight hours a night, and if you drink eight num if you drink X number of fluid ounces of water per day, that will enormously impact your health if you aren't feeling great. Which is all more or less free, right? Like you're all already paying to do all of those things. But the problem is so many people don't want that. They don't want to hear that. They want something faster. And they want it they want to hear that their body is different so that they need something special for their body so the impatience coupled with the fact that if you drink turmeric and all of a sudden you're sleeping better that will take off on social media and then the next minute everybody wants turmeric right like i remember last year i went to the store to try to buy apple cider vinegar just for cooking and it was like gone. There was nothing on the shelves. And that's because about a year ago, everyone was talking about how apple cider vinegar helps with inflammation and insomnia and hydration. And now no one's talking about it because it helps certain people, but the placebo effect is also very real. So overall, I don't know, guys, like take, like taking it back, obviously keep your own health in check. I can't stress more how important it is and how it's something that I wish on all of you more than career success is your health and the health of your loved ones. But I, I didn't know that these companies, I did, when I started, I didn't know that these companies can make these claims without having any FDA approval behind them. Um, now I do, uh, not just because I've done my own research, but because like I said, I'm dating a pharmacist and she complains about it all the time. 
But just make sure you're always asking the right questions and doing your own research before you spread these claims further than they should go, right? Food is so powerful, and by working with it, I think we're obligated to at least be knowledgeable about uh, about it to the extent that it impacts the people that we're serving. We don't have to be complete nutritionist experts, but I think we should at least be in the know about these things so that when we get these questions, um, we're not ignorant about it. So last up in industry style news, this is direct answer. It's usually a DM that you folks have sent me. This one comes from Kim Chi Desu on Instagram. He says, hey, Justin, first of all, I just want to say that I absolutely love all the content that you post. Uh, as a relatively new cook, I find your insights and tips extremely helpful. You look at the big picture and also address the subtle nuances that many of us have questions about, but may not know how to ask. He says, I have a quick question. I am in Tokyo for around two months. I'm trying to stodge my way around town. Uh, he might be going to Den, which is exciting. Had a great meal there. Um, but he says, I'm looking for other places uh, or suggestions in the meantime. Are there any restaurants that pique my interest in Tokyo? He also wants to go to Narisawa and this place called Salmon and Trout. Uh, and I already sent him a direct message back and answered this question, but when I was looking for questions to share at this um, stage in the show, I particularly wanted to um, send it to him. So I wanted to answer it on the show as well, and I'm going to kind of break it down a little bit deeper than what I sent him in a message. So um, I said that it, that you should, of course, go for those bigger places, right? Like the places that are either going to be resume builders for you, or they're going to show you something that you've never seen before, or give you access to a place that you really want to see, get some insight into what they do uh, on the daily. On the flip side, I also told him that he should try to look for a place that's really, really niche, right? Like, um, Japan is known for that. Japan is known for the fact that there are there's a hole-in-the-wall place that just does yakitori or just does sashimi or just does um, the little okonomiyaki balls, the octopus balls, and that's the only thing that they do. So if you have the opportunity to go to a place like that, I think there could be a lot of insight gained from that because... The simple food is sometimes the best food. Uh, seeing how a chef that just does one thing sets up his station and goes about interacting with the customers and lays out the restaurant, those are all really cool things that you could observe. So I, I, I suggested that he take a look into going to a smaller, n not lesser known, but not so high profile place where he can get some insight into something. I mean, I think about the fact that um, I spent a little bit of time uh, helping to make cheese at this place in, in Norway, or um, that we did, special, specialty knowledge goes very, very far, and it might seem like this is kind of worthless to learn how to make yakitori, but then at the same time, it's like you can take that for the rest of your life, saying that I spent a week with this guy who just made yakitori. And not say that you're an expert, but at least say that I've spent some time around this guy where this is the one thing that he does. Um, so might be worth checking out. I definitely suggested that he do it. Um, but if you are doing that where you're going to a city and you're planning on staging and you have some time to spare, don't discount it and don't um, mail it in like that. Because yes, all the Michelin restaurants are great, but at the same time, it's also really, really valuable to get that specialized experience. And I... I, I Sincerely wish you the best, and I hope that you uh, have a great time at Den. Uh, 
as with most direct answer stuff, I'm always happy to get DMs from you guys and answer questions if I have some free time available. But if you want to go deeper, if you want to talk through your ambitions or progressing your career and getting that raise at work, building a personal brand, hosting pop-ups, I offer one-on-one coaching typically one hour long sessions. Uh, if it's something that you want to explore, check out justinconnacom slash coaching. Definitely allows me to go way deeper than just a back and forth message on a social media platform and really provide some value and get your story and help you make your next move. I am starting with this podcast specifically uh, at the end of these shows. If you make it this far, Uh, which I'm very, very happy some of you do. If you want to do a coaching session, enter code end of show, end of the show. I'll post it. uh, Let me actually check for you guys. Yeah, it's end of the show. So if you enter code end of the show, you get 10% off of a coaching session. And that's just a thank you for you guys sticking all the way to the end of the podcast. Uh, In our non-industry story of the week, uh, I don't have one this week. I would love for one of you guys on Twitch to give me something that you're excited about that's outside of the normal uh, restaurant story thing. And let me know what you want to talk about, and we'll talk a little bit about it after the show finishes. But that'll do it for this show and episode 66. I'm not keeping track. If you guys have stories that you want covered next week, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me <laughs>